welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Colette and Tom are joined by Peter Coe from the University of Reading today and will be taking you through the latest media law headlines. We have a Supreme Court judgment in ZXC and Bloomberg, more analysis of the forthcoming online harms bill, Joe Rogan's dispute with Spotify, updates on the Attorney General and BBC claim, as well as a new royal claim that's been issued. But first, I want to start with a brief discussion of Ukraine and the various media law-related news items linked to the Russian invasion. Facebook has started a special operations centre to monitor posts coming out of Ukraine that will respond in real time and is staffed by native speakers. Facebook has also provided Ukrainians with a new lock feature, which is said to provide an extra level of privacy and security by preventing people who aren't friends with the user from seeing or downloading any activity from them. Russia is reported to have limited access to Facebook and Twitter amid fallout of the attack on Ukraine, but it's unclear exactly what those restrictions entail. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, has launched its own sanctions against Russia by barring state media from running any ads or monetizing Facebook or monetizing on Facebook anywhere in the world. And closer to home, the Kremlin-funded British news channel RT has come under fire for its pro-Russian reporting. The invasion was described as a special military operation, and the seizing of territory of another nation was described in terms of liberation. This led the Labour leader, Sir Kiev Starmer, to demand that RT's broadcasting licence be revoked. Peter, I know you've written on this very issue just recently for Inform. Could you give us a little bit of information about... Um, yeah, sure. So um, at the moment, I think Ofcom are. I mean, Off, Ofcom would be would be the ones responsible for banning RT if, if it came to that. But I think at the moment they are very much undertaking a watching brief on this. Um, certainly, from from what I've read um, and, and the information that I've come across, the the feeling at the minute is that RT's coverage and its influence in the UK is is minimal. Um, the, the last viewing figures suggests that it only has view, view, viewers of around about 79,000 in the UK with the average viewer tuning in for about a minute at a time. So it's, its coverage and influence is, is limited. And if you compare that to BBC Russia's coverage and its influence and its ability to kind of counter the narrative that um, we're, we're getting from the Kremlin, um, the, the, the BBC is, is, is far more important in that regard. Uh, and I think there is a concern that if Ofcom were to ban RT, then Russia would react in a, in a tit-for-tat way uh, and would ban BBC's Russia services, which would have um, you know, potentially a, a, a far more um, damaging effect uh, in, in respect of countering Kremlin's narrative than if we just kind of allow RT to carry on doing what it's doing um, and, and probably causing minimal, minimal damage because of its limited coverage. Um, but I think Ofcom, you know, will, will be prepared to act if RT does overstep uh, the, the, you know, the boundaries and if it does break the, um, the broadcasting code. Uh, and it's done this before. So in 2019, I believe we saw... Um, RT fined £200,000 for its coverage of the Salisbury poisoning. Um, and so Ofcom, you know, they have, they have, they have form for reprimanding uh, RT, and I'm sure they will do so again if they feel they need to. But at the moment, I think the feeling is, is that they probably don't step in um, uh, because of the greater forces that are at play. What kind of breaches of the broadcasting code would they be looking out for? Well, 
actually, funnily enough, uh, Melanie Dawes, who is the chief executive of Ofcom, actually spoke spoke to this recently. Um, and she said that when she said Ofcom is actively monitoring RT's output for breaches of the code, she said that it, it has made it clear that that you know RT is not permitted to broadcast one-sided propaganda, but they do acknowledge that it is acceptable under the code for broadcasters to present you know a particular perspective, provided that alternative views and opinions are also represented. So I think you know that's what they're watching for. They're watching that it doesn't go from you know here's a perspective, but there are other views to literally just spouting one-sided propaganda. And as soon as it steps steps into those realms. That's a, that, I think, is when Ofcom will have to take further action. Moving on to uh, ZXC, because this is a big Supreme Court judgment we've been waiting for for a while, so I wouldn't even have time for discussion on that. Um, this came out on the 16th of February 2022, with the Supreme Court agreeing with the Court of First Instance and the Court of Appeal that anonymity should be granted to those under criminal investigation until they are charged. The assumption that the court stated is that the investigation is private information and that should be taken as a legitimate starting point. Article 10 does not provide a universal justification for inflicting serious and often unjustified damages on the reputation of suspects. The Supreme Court also confirmed that Article 8 encompasses a reputational dimension which, while primarily protected by the tort of defamation, is also protected by the tort of misuse of private information if the harms claim attain a certain level of seriousness. Who wants to start with discussion on this? I'll jump in. Um, so this is a case that we've been uh, awaiting the outcome of for some time now. Um, ZXC's been rumbling on for a couple of years uh, through the various stages of its litigation. And the, the main... Uh, issue that the whole case revolves around is this notion of whether uh, the fact of a person having come under criminal suspicion from the authorities should be something uh, over which that individual has a reasonable expectation of privacy, at least prima facie, uh, such that they can bring a claim to protect that privacy if the information ends up in the press. And we saw this, for example, in the Cliff Richard case that Paul and I have talked about at length on the podcast before and listeners will remember. Listeners may also remember that ever since uh, Paul and I have spoken uh, and written together indeed on uh, the Cliff Richard case, uh, Paul's taken every opportunity that he possibly can to uh, tell everybody how wrong I am in my perspective that uh, suspects in that situation uh, do and should have at least prima facie a reasonable expectation of privacy. And I'm heartened um, by the Supreme Court's decision because we have a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court uh, that absolutely expressly uh, tells us that I am right and Paul is not. Um, so whilst I have um, uh, diligently refrained from rising to the bait uh, on previous occasions, it does feel nice to have my uh, uh, reading of the state of the law confirmed, which of course has now not just been confirmed by uh, the Supreme Court, but also the Court of Appeal and the High Court. So that's nine judges uh, who've considered the matter in the last two years have all agreed uh, uh, with uh, uh, the view that I put forward uh, in, in discussions with Paul and in the piece that we wrote. Um, so that's, you know, the personal bit of satisfaction about it. But let's leave my personal satisfaction aside 
Um, is this a good thing? Uh, broadly, I think that it is a good thing um, because it is going to uh, encourage or indeed force uh, media outlets uh, to behave more sensibly and in a more nuanced fashion in their reporting of criminal proceedings. It also brings civil law into line with, um, for example, uh, police uh, practice and uh, the guidelines that, have, uh, that the police themselves have produced to guide the circumstances in which they release information about uh, criminal suspects uh, before uh, they are charged, if indeed they are ever charged. So it brings the civil law into line with that, and that was cited quite heavily by the Supreme Court as part of their justification for ruling the way uh, that they did. Um, I think it's important that we say, and we emphasize just how uh, how important the issue is, that this is just a starting point. What the case does not do is say, all criminal suspects will always have a reasonable expectation of privacy, nor does it say, and moreover, those suspects will always win their privacy case. There are two stages of the analysis in misuse of private information claims where that can still fall down. First, if the highly fact-sensitive exercise in determining whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy flags up issues that militate against that finding, then the claim will fail still at stage one. It is only a starting point that this is possible, um, uh, and so it can still be challenged at stage one. And I've no doubt it will still be challenged at stage one. And you will see, moreover, uh, reports in the press that identify people post-arrest but pre-charge in circumstances where the press's in-house lawyers still think that an argument could be made to defend it. I would expect to see that, and I think there are certainly circumstances in which it could be a good thing, uh, particularly, for example, where there is a likelihood that if one uh, puts a name out there, more complainants might come forward. And there certainly are, uh, there, there are issues around that. The second is, of course, that uh, at stage two of the analysis, the balancing test, it's entirely possible um, that uh, revealing a criminal suspect's identity might be justifiable under Article 10. Um, and that's an analysis that we surely, and uh, a point that I, I've made before, we want the courts to get to that stage of the analysis, don't we? To, to engage um, with it rather than just uh, acceding to newspaper demands to rule the whole thing out at stage one. Stage one is crude. Uh, rather, I mean, it may be fact sensitive, but it is still a fairly crude uh, bar barrier to entry. Um, you clear it or you don't. Stage two is where we want the nuanced balancing exercise. And sure, I, I accept the analysis that Paul himself has put forward about the difficulties that the courts have actually doing the balancing exercise, but that's a story for another day. Um, in theory, I think we still want the courts to get to that stage. Um, I've more to say on that, but uh, I'd love to hear what Pete's come in wanted to say about this case as well. Well, uh, Tom, I agree. I mean, the... It was very, it's very clear in the judgment um, that this is just, as we talked about, just a legitimate starting point. Um, the, the, the judgment is extremely clear on that, um, as were the judgments, you know, Mr. Justice Nicklin's judgment in the High Court, and we had the same in the Court of Appeal as, as well. Um, so I, I agree entirely on what you've said in respect of that. And I think that, well, as you would expect, um, the 
the, the decision of the Supreme Court was met with polarised opinion. Um, on the one hand, you've got privacy campaigners who think that this this was it's, it's a wonderful judgment. Um, they've seen it as a as a fabulous victory for privacy, and you can understand why. You know the the potentially devastating consequences for individuals identified as suspects in criminal cases, but never charged. And, and indeed, their families are often drawn into this as well, uh, have long been recognised. I mean, we, we all, we're all well aware of what happened to Christopher Jeffries, for instance, when he was um, uh, arrested um, uh, and, 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 you know, didn't end up being charged um, uh, with the... It was, was it Joanna Yates? Yes. Yeah, with, Joanna, with, the, with the murder of Joanna Yates uh, and the damage that that did to his, to his life. Um, the stigma attached to an investigation and the emotional, physical and psychological toll that it takes can long outlast the investigation itself, with reputations and relationships often being irreparably damaged. Um, so, you know, you can absolutely see why this, this judgment is seen as a, as a very good thing. And indeed, you know, pre-charge anonymity um, has widespread widespread public support. There was an informed post um, a while ago which said that, you know, in the latest um, uh, figures, it suggested that around about 86% of the population support pre-charge anonymity. And indeed, I think this is reflected, this, this support for pre-charge anonymity was um, uh, reflected in the judgment. Um, the, the, the Supreme Court went to, went to great pains to go through the the policy reasons for why it's important to maintain pre-charge anonymity uh, and indeed the case law that supports those policy reasons. Um, on the other hand, as you can probably imagine, uh, the certain members of the, the media and the press uh, met the decision with, uh, you know, with, with, with widespread um, uh, derision. They, were, they weren't happy with the decision at, at all. Um, and just to give you kind of some highlights of what's been said in the press, um, the Financial Times called it a ruling that will shield wealthy crime suspects. Bloomberg, as you, as you can probably imagine, have been even more damning in their coverage of the judgment, saying that our judges are helping the next Robert Maxwell and that powerful people under investigation for criminal activity have been given a path to keep their names out of print. And according to John Micklethwaite, who's the Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, he said, we are stumbling toward a system in which tabloids can still peek into celebrities' bedrooms, but serious journalists cannot report on potential wrongdoing at public companies by powerful people. Now, my view on this is that you know, I, I absolutely understand that we have to protect our journalists and enable them to, to go about their job um, uh, and to be able to carry out investigative journalism properly because it's so important for the health of our democracy, for the health of our public sphere. Um, but on the other hand, I do think that some of these media outlets are getting their knickers in a twist about this because, as Tom said, and I've already mentioned, the legitimate starting point is just a starting point. They're very clear in relation to that. Um, and they have to surely acknowledge that a balance needs to be struck. You know, Not every individual who is charged with a, oh, sorry, who's, who's investigated, not charged, but investigated with a criminal offence, is a wealthy individual, such as the individual in ZXC. They're not a person who has, you know, PR behind them, legal resources, financial resources, to be able to produce a counter-narrative, um, to be able to repair their reputation. 
they are individuals like Christopher Jeffries. They're individuals like you and I who don't have those sort of resources and who, whose lives can be irreparably damaged because of that sort of coverage prior to charge. And, you know, it, it's it's essentially, I think, you know, in, in some cases, it's trial by media. You're, you're, uh, you're guilty until proven innocent. And then even if you are not charged, if you are innocent... Um, it doesn't matter because the damage is is done, uh, and we've seen that with with many individuals in the past. So I think there has to be some acknowledgement that you know, as Thomas said, this judgment really is a could could really be a good thing, um, and and indeed uh, I think there has to be acknowledgement that as I said, balance needs to be struck. I agree with 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 Pete and the for me the tabloids and the even the, the more serious the broadsheet response to this and bloomberg's own response to this I'm not quite sure where we classify bloomberg in in terms of a media entity um i guess it regards itself as a very serious one um the response there is i, I think frankly worth very little time um it, it is the usual hyperbolic this is the end of free speech as we know it response that we get every single time there's a privacy ruling that uh, a, a media body doesn't like and um, it, uh, I've just let it wash over me I'm afraid in the last few years um, the objections to this sort of ruling and the rulings of the earlier courts which obviously were in agreement with, with the Supreme Court um, from academics I think aren't worth taking more seriously and the big objection that has been made by scholars like uh, like Paul and also by um, people like Nicole Morham um, is essentially that in using misuse of private information as an, to provide an avenue of redress in these sorts of cases, the MPI tort is being overworked, that it's doing too much. And specifically their concern is that it is straying into the realms of uh, defamation rather than privacy in that it's protecting reputational interests. Now what the Supreme Court has said it absolutely clearly citing jurisprudence in the European Court of Human Rights which I've cited myself in making the argument so I agree with it um, is that reputation can and should be regarded as part of one's right to private life it is an aspect of one's private life, and it is simultaneously thus an interest that can be protected by a course of action designed to protect one's interest in private life, as well as being protected by a discrete action designed simply to protect reputation. And I think that this idea of the concept of reputation having multiple aspects may be what is stumping some of those who object to it. Um, but but it's not something that I, I have great difficulty getting my head around myself, nor in accepting the validity of. Um, I mean, to, to use a very crude geographical analogy, um, Wales is part of the United Kingdom and a country in its own right, um, uh, as I think any Welsh person will tell you. Um, I, I have no difficulty with the notion it can be both. Uh, reputation can be an aspect of one's privacy and an interest in its own right that is also worth protecting in its own right. Um, and thus you can have multiple avenues for redress. And this is not unusual in tort law. You have multiple causes of action that can be prayed in aid in any given case. 
And if you take the James Rhodes case that we've talked about, the uh, Owen Day, for example, he was the, the pianist who wrote an autobiography that had details of graphic abuse he'd suffered as a child and uh, through a litigation friend, his son was trying to prevent the publication of this. Um, that case was pleaded in misuse of private information, the tort in Wilkinson and Downton, which is the tort of willful infliction of uh, sort of psychological harm, um, and the tort of negligence. And of course, you have multiple causes of action that can respond to a single instance. That is normal. There's always overlap in, in the law. So I have no great difficulty with that. I have got two concerns about this particular case as an academic, leaving, as I say, my my, 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 my personal satisfaction at being proved right um, aside for a moment. Um, I do actually have two concerns because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a perfectionist and I can never be entirely satisfied with what the courts do. The first issue I have is I, I, I have some sympathy with the idea that MPI is being overworked. I just think it's being overworked in a different way. Um, my issue here is not between reputation and privacy, but between truth and falsity. Um, because false information and defamatory information are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, information can be false, but not defamatory. And the problem here is we're using misuse of private information to cover both true statements and false statements based on really not a lot of rational underpinning. Um, there have been a few statements to this effect that it's possible to do it, most famously in the McKennett case, where it was essentially used as an excuse to give some damages where it's just easier to give damages for the entirety of what was objected to than try to hive off a small part of it. Uh, in the McKenna case, in terms of uh, you know objecting to a, a book in which most of what was written was true and a little bit was false. Um, and the courts just took the easy route there. But in so doing, they opened the door to the idea that MPI can cover false statements. Um, and this, I think, does represent an overworking of the tort. I still think the appropriate thing to do is have a privacy tort that responds to this problem because these interests are properly classified as part of private life. But I would like to see it done through a discrete tort that dealt specifically with false information that damages one's uh, privacy interests. Uh, and the appropriate vehicle for that exists in the United States, but does not yet exist here. It is the tort of false light invasion of privacy. I've spoken about it a bit on the podcast before. I even gave a conference paper on it back in the autumn. At some point, I will write that conference paper up into a proper paper and publish it somewhere. Um, but until then, as I'm still kind of working through the ideas, I'm becoming ever more convinced that the right reaction to this is to develop a separate tort for false information that harms private life. The second issue that I have, and I will mention this only briefly here um, with the judgment, is, is, is of a very different order. And it relates really to concerns that I raised in a piece I, I, I wrote in an edited collection um, with, uh, I co-authored the piece with my good friend Olivia Riley, um, where we wrote about judicial methodology in the Supreme Court specifically, because, I mean, listeners will be familiar with the fact that I generally write about privacy, but I don't just write about privacy and defamation. Uh, I'm also uh, interested in uh, judicial methodology, by which I mean uh, what the courts do and how they do it. Um, and that, that, that's not got a, a particular doctrinal limitation on it. Uh, and my concern uh, that we wrote about in that piece was that we were getting more and more of these unitary judgments from the Supreme Court, judgments that are where all the judges agree and there's no dissent. 
Um, and the problem that I have with that in principle is that uh, unitary judgments give the appearance that uh, the point of law that is being ruled on is not controversial. Um, and that can obscure important nuances within the doctrine. Fact is that this is a controversial point, and the degree of controversy out there in the public and out there in the academic community is not reflected in a total judicial score of 9 nil, um, and in the Supreme Court particularly 5 nil, um, uh, in favour of the privacy interest. Um, so I understand why courts want to do this. Uh, a, it, as a practical matter, it saves time if they have fewer judgments um, to, to look at. And, uh, um, but also courts like to give rulings th that have the benefit of appearing clear uh, and certain. Uh, the issue is that that reflects a very particular understanding of what clarity is. Clarity as the absence of dissent, the absence of opposing voices. There's a different form of clarity which is also important. Clarity is transparency. Clarity is giving you the opportunity to appreciate the difficult nuances and controversies within particular points of law. That gets lost when we have unitary judgments. Now, I'm not opposed to the idea that courts should, if they can genuinely find absolute unanimity and consensus, should speak in that way. I don't think they should invent dissent and disputes for the sake of it. But it would be helpful, I think, in a lot of cases to see, for example, if there are different reasons why the judges agree. And they might come to the same conclusion, but for slightly different reasons. I still think it's more helpful to see those reasons and to have them laid out transparently. Um, it doesn't make for an easy textbook chapter on these matters when we do it. You know, the law students of the world will not thank us for it. I guess the, the barristers and those writing the memos supporting the barristers, should they be lucky enough to have people who do that, um, will probably not thank us for it either. But I think it's important that we see the courts uh, not just playing a game of appearances, but actually reflecting any disagreements or differently concurring uh, ideas uh, that they might have. So that's my other concern, that this might represent another step in that direction. We have seen a, a significant increase in the number of unitary judgments over the last decade being issued by our Supreme Court um, compared to the previous, uh, well, that would have been the House of Lords before that, but the House of Lords in the previous couple of decades, the 90s and the 2000s. Um, and I have this sort of uh, nagging feeling that we're losing something. But um, all of that we can return to at some point, I guess, depending on how these things go. I'm still generally in favour of uh, the decision that's been made here. Well, I know that uh, I'm sure Paul will have many comments on ZXC himself. So uh, this is likely to make a longer podcast uh, another time where um, the, the judgment can be discussed uh, to a greater extent. Um, but for now, let's talk about another case that's happened um, recently in the UK courts, and that is the ruling against the Attorney General who applied to have um, an injunction against the BBC to be 
for a case um, relating to an MI5 agency heard in private. That was refused last week, and the case is currently being heard in public, with some parts being held in private today, and that's the 1st of March, um, and the 2nd of March, that's when the, the case is listed for. The application relates to a programme which alleges that a person described as X is a covert human intelligence source, as well as a dangerous extremist and misogynist who physically and psychologically abused two former female partners. X is alleged to have told one of the women that he worked for MI5 in order to terrorise and control her. And the programme contends that MI5 should have known about X's behaviour and realised that it was inappropriate to use him as a covert human intelligence source. Uh, the Attorney General was arguing that this programme would uh, breach national security by giving up information about uh, an MI5 agent. Uh, but His Honour Justice Chamberlain held that the Attorney General had not advanced sufficiently compelling a sufficiently compelling reason for departing from the principle of open access. While we're in the UK, it's worth just briefly mentioning that Prince Harry has filed a claim, a defamation claim against Associated News for libel over a newspaper article that alleged he attempted to keep the details of his legal battle to reinstate his police protection secret from the public. The disputed article was published on the 20th of February 2022 and alleged that Harry sought a confidentiality order on documents and witness statements in the case. Uh, we don't have that much information about uh, the claim, only what's reported uh, on BBC, ITV News, um, in quite short articles. But I, I would have assumed this wouldn't pass Section 1. Um, I, does anyone else want to give a comment onto that? Maybe I'm wrong. It, it's very difficult to say without seeing the allegation in detail or the article to which it refers. And I note there were a number of articles written um and it's not been made public which of them the claim refers to, um, and we haven't yet um, organised ourselves to go and get a copy of the uh, complaint. Uh, it might not even be publicly available yet, um, but at some point this will become clearer. On the face of it, I struggle to see how this particular allegation, as best we understand it at the moment, it meets the defamatory criteria in section one for serious harm. Um, to say of a person that they tried to keep parts of their application for security funding secret doesn't strike me as tremendously harmful uh, to uh, a reputation, but um, it may be the case has nuances we don't know about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, we will keep um, listeners updated when we yeah. hear more about this case as it progresses. Uh, moving over to America, then, um, I want to discuss briefly the Joe Rogan and Spotify dispute. Well, I guess it's not really American, is it? Spotify is a Swedish company, isn't it? Um, anyway, the Joe Rogan and Spotify dispute. Uh, Spotify has come under fire recently for views expressed by Joe Rogan, who's the host of the platform's most popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. Rogan, who became famous as an ultimate fighting commentator, has argued that healthy young people should not get a COVID-19 vaccination. This goes against medical advice from governments all over the world. Despite widespread calls to deplatform Rogan and pressure from a number of musical artists, including Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, 
Spotify has kept the Rogan experience on its platform, but tagged controversial COVID-related content with links to hubs containing trustworthy information. I just want to get uh, some thoughts on this. Where do we land? Do we think that Spotify does have a duty to respect uh, harmful speech, or is its status as a platform uh, give us some protection here? I think I think there's a just just probably jumping in actually if you don't mind because um, it, 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 it wasn't obviously I mean I have to say I'm going I'm to admit something here on the podcast which may horrify listeners but when you mentioned that we were talking about this I had to actually look up who Joe Rogan actually is I didn't I didn't know about this which is probably a terrible thing to admit but I've I've obviously done my research and I've looked into Joe Rogan I've looked into his podcast and the issues around it and as as, as well as this issue around um, the spreading of misinformation about the COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccine. Um, uh, India RE, who's another one, was another one of Spotify's um, artists, um, she, um, I think it was on her Instagram account, put together a video compilation highlighting Rogan's use of racist language during his podcasts. Uh, and I think at the, at the time that we're doing, you know, as things stand at the moment, um, 113 episodes of the Joe Rogan experience have been pulled from Spotify because either there are issues around COVID-19 or because of the racist language that's used on them. And you obviously mentioned Neil Young has left Spotify, NDRE has left Spotify, Jody Mitchell has now left Spotify as a, as a result of all of this. But one of the things you have to bear in mind is, you know, Joe Rogan is worth a fortune to Spotify. So they paid... $100 million to have exclusive access to his podcast, which equates to about £73 million. It's a fortune. And I read somewhere, and I'm just going to find this now, because this was this was staggering, that here you go. So <clears throat> Spotify paid £73 million quid for the rights to the Joe Rogan experience. A musician would need to generate 23 billion streams on Spotify to earn what spotify are paying joe rogan for his podcast rights so it just shows the value um that you know that, that this this particular uh, podcast has to spotify and probably why they haven't as yet taken it, it down although daniel eck um has apparently pledged a hundred million dollars towards licensing development and marketing of music uh, artists and songwriters and audio content from historically marginalized groups as a way of I guess, offsetting some of the damage being caused by Rogan's podcasts. So many comments on... In the context of a pandemic, there is a hypersensitivity to the impact of misinformation um, that I think in normal times we would find objectionable, but not so threatening. Um, and in particular around vaccinations at a time where there is a major effort by governments around the world to get as many people vaccinated as possible. There is a not unpopular sense that those who are uh, spreading messages that fit broadly into the anti-vaxxer category um, need to be countered. Whether they need to be cancelled, I think, is a rather different um, question. I, I can't think of any obviously applicable laws that 
what I've heard about Rogan's podcast, and I say this from a position of having never listened to the man, um, what I've heard about his podcast in respect of COVID vaccinations, has said, I can't think of any laws that he's obviously broken. The allegations, which I have to say I wasn't familiar with until until Pete mentioned them just now about um, uh, racist content uh, on his podcast, would if that's correct, um, now that would be deeply disturbing. But that would, of course, um, run contrary to some established criminal laws in a lot of different jurisdictions. Uh, so it would be entirely uh, understandable if uh, that material were removed. And, and, and obviously, uh, any, anyone who spreads that sort of information is worthy, not just of the strongest legal response it's possible to give, but also of our uh, moral opprobrium. Um, so I, I don't think that there is anything legally that compels Spotify to remove material around COVID vaccination even if it is on the side of don't get vaccinated, which is obviously not popular and which I would join with many people across the world and saying, I, I think that that perspective is not a not a good one. Um, I, I think it is. It, it doesn't have a strong enough basis um, to, to be worthy of a, a great deal of support and attention. But unless we are to live in a world where there is to be no personal choice whatsoever over things like vaccinations, um, I think it's right that our laws don't criminalise this sort of content, but rather leave it to us to, to counter it with, uh, with the opposite perspective. I think what's what's interesting, actually, um, uh, Tom, and and, and I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I mean, as I said at the start, we start talking about uh, Joe Rogan. I didn't actually know who he was, which is probably terrible to admit. Um, and I've not listened to his podcast either. Uh, so what I'm talking about here is what I've read um, since since you know I've, I've since I've come across him, and uh, and I knew that we were going to be discussing him today. Um, the he actually came out and said on the 31st of January, apparently, this is Joe Rogan. Um, so he interviewed certain guests on his podcast, um, one of which was uh, was a was a, a doctor called Dr. Robert Malone and another person, a, doc, a cardiologist, Dr. Peter McCulloch, um, who, who I think were, were the these particular guests were the ones that apparently were responsible for kind of spreading this these anti-vax anti-vac messages uh, and this misinformation around around COVID-19. Um, and what Rogan said about this is that I do not know if they're right. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. You know, I was merely interviewing them. What seems to have caused, again, from my reading of it, um, and, I, and I could be wrong here, but what seems to, be, to have caused more, more of an issue, and I can absolutely understand why, is, is the allegations of the use of racist language on his um, on his podcast, and this was brought to light by, by um, I said in, in the RE uh, on her Instagram account um, on the sixth of February. Apparently, Daniel Eck told employees at Spotify that Rogan's use of racial slurs were incredibly hurtful. But Eck went on to say that silencing Joe Rogan is not the answer. And he said, while I strongly condemn what Joe has said, and I agree with his decision to remove past episodes from our platform, I realise some will want more. Um, and then soon after that, Neil Young, a 
apparently urged Spotify employees to leave the company before, and this, this is these were Neil Young's words, before it eats up your soul. Um, uh, so there, there has been significant backlash since these race, these racist um, uh, remarks, racist comments came to light, and it seems as though that actually has kind of just increased the fuel on the fire that was already there in relation to the misinformation uh, in relation to um, to COVID nineteen. I think while we're sticking with the kind of um, obligations that platforms have when dealing with distressing material, the online harms bill has come up with uh, new proposals that have been mentioned um, on this very point on, on um, whether we should criminalise distressing material. Uh, there's been quite a lot of confusion in the reports of this as to whether it was um, written, whether it's how far along in the legislative process these are. Does anyone want to make any comments on, on, on that? Uh, yeah, so this was something that, 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 I, that I wanted to cover and largely based on news reports. Um, news reports, it seems... Yeah, once you dig into them, are not based on concrete proposals yet, but rather on um, what the culture, culture secretary has um, said will be in an amended bill. Um, so there's a proposal to create some new offences, including um, to do with the publication of um, intentionally distressing material. At first glance, the way that that's written up in the press um, and the way that it's phrased by the government on, um, on on the government's website, it sounds like it might give cause for concern, but uh, we're going to need to wait until we see the phrasing of these proposed offences in a revised draft bill before we can really get into any detailed analysis and comment on them. And I, I had assumed that the government, uh, when it made that um, statement, um, would have those proposals ready to go, but I haven't seen them. I've had a look. The latest version of the draft bill is the one from 2021, um, and this was a statement put out at the beginning of February. So um, clearly the, the existing draft is not the one that's um, going to be introduced to to Parliament when it comes up for a vote. Um, so I guess we'll wait and come back in a future uh, newscast when we've got more information there. Yes, absolutely. Um, that concludes everything that I wanted to talk about today. So I just want to thank Pete for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you, Tom. Great to talk to you as always. As ever. Thanks, Colette. And as ever, do follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts again soon. Thanks very much. Bye.